0: I became passionate about the soils because I realised how important they are to what we do. There's, you can't get away from the fact that, that it doesn't matter what sort of farm type you're on, you rely on that soil to be in good order. You can't farm soils that are in, in poor condition. It's, it, one, it costs a lot. Two, it raises the risk. There's, there's just no sense in it.
1: Welcome to the Corum Sense podcast, where we explore how New Zealand farmers are creating more resilient, regenerative and enjoyable farming systems.
2: I'm John O'Fruit and I'm Duncan Hum. Today we're talking to Mike Porter from St Andrews, not Waimati. Canterby arable farmer and classic car petrol head whose innovative approach and early adoption of regenerative agriculture has turned a steep rolling block into a really high performing dry land no-till cropping farm that also embraces a strong role of livestock diversity and what that can play in a successful crop production system. Radio, Mike Porter, how are we? I'm good, good. That's the story. Yeah. Jono, how are you?
1: Yeah, good, thanks, Dan. Good. Awesome. Good. Awesome. good to be here. First, first session.
2: First session. We've dragged Mike all the way up from Waimati.
0: Yeah, well um, you're more St Andrews, actually. Yeah it's yeah. oh, yeah. a sensitive
1: subject. My <laughs> <laughs> <just laughs> girlfriend's from, y- from y- St. Andrews <laughs> and people ask her. She says she's from Wymedi and her old man goes, No, you're from St Andrews. <laughs>
2: Ooh, faux pas. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: Well thanks for coming up, Mike. Mm. Um yeah, yeah, we we got you on because you know, we've always been inspired by things you've had to say and certainly more recently, especially, um your your contributions to the to the WhatsApp group and, and your wee posts there. Um yeah, like leading, me, yeah, Yeah. yeah leading, it, leading
2: into like yeah, Soil Health days obviously this weekend and you've been doing a pretty cool wee series leading up to that. So do you want to just yeah, tell us about that a bit more detail.
0: Yeah, I just decided last weekend that World Soil Day is a really good excuse to not I don't know whether we need to celebrate but we definitely need to acknowledge it. You know, like 95% of the world's food is growing on in soil or on soil. And um it's just such a such a cool reason to um to just reflect on what we do, like who hasn't been involved in soil at one time or another? It's good therapy getting our hands dirty, and yeah, and I, I just think it's a it's a great thing to to talk about soils. Yeah. yeah, it's it's a really exciting thing, and and the more I the more I know, the more I find out, and the more I know, the more I realise I don't know, and that's that's just fantastic. Yeah, It's yeah. a yeah.
1: And how long have you been farming for now, Mike?
0: Um, we I came back home at in nineteen eighty three. Uh, from, um, I'm a Telford boy, a gate opener, Uh, so I did a year at uh, (laughs) at, uh, Telford Farm Training Institute as it was known in those days. Um, Quite frankly, because um, my family, we doubled our acreage in 1984, uh, which put us in a really perilous position equity-wise when the 1984 election happened, which caused a lot of political upheaval. Uh, which resulted in um, for agriculture the loss of farm subsidies, et cetera. Mm. So um, I was, and un- well, I, I don't know whether I was unlucky, but I, I, I consider myself to be to be lucked out when it came to um, getting to uni. I, I didn't get a chance to go. It was uh, it was a case of come home and work for nothing, or there'll be nothing to work for. Mm. So I had to make a decision there and then. And back yeah.
1: then, you know, you, you hear the obvious passion and Mike's, you know. Mm voice or just general expression about soil back then did you have the same sort of passion like did you see soil back then um you know the way that you do now or was that something that came much later
0: no that was yeah i i I really um what where it started was i was um you know we we've always been into growing crops and we're i should explain that we're um over three quarters of our farm area is quite is quite steep as far as an arable farm goes. You couldn't really consider it arable country. It's it's more sheep and beef, all dry land, no irrigation. So, um, And we were a plough-based system. And I came home one, one lunchtime and said to my father, who I was working for at the time, I said to him, do you realise that that fence at the bottom of that back face where I've been cultivating is now only six wires? The seventh wire is buried. It's um, just through um, soil erosion and um, general downdraft from implements and that sort of thing has caused the, the fence in the gully to, to bury itself. And um, that it, it really concerned me. And Dad said, oh, yeah, okay, well, we're probably going to have to um, get the excavator in there and just pull the soil off the fence. And I, was, I said to him, yeah, but that would that would fix the fence problem, but it wouldn't fix the paddock problem. It's, um, we need to look deeper than that. And that's sort of where it all started. So when I, when I started on all this, it was because of a concern about soil erosion. And it was a concern that a lot of other people don't acknowledge that they have. But everybody's got soil erosion. We talked about that in one of our, you know, on one of my um, uh, Quorum Sense posts where um, you know, there's such a thing as vertical erosion. But um, erosion happens for us. And like you know, I, I say that, that farming a flat farm compared to our hills is like farming in dog years where it takes you seven years to, to experience the same result as it does with us on the hills. Everything just happens that much faster. Mm. Yeah, so um, so that's where it all started from. Was the as yeah. as you start,
2: you know, what was like the thought process? Because back then, if you were thinking of something different, or you know, because we think, yeah, you know, I think back to my own history. Like even like five years ago, ten years ago, anything outside the normal wee box or university life or whatever. If you were doing something a bit different, like yeah, even five years ago, or even now. People were looking at you funny, <laughs> and so and obviously you're we're blessed. At the now we've got all this open source information and networking with social media and information so much easier to get. Yeah, back in the eighties, how did you get a hold of like? <laughs> no yeah, you know, how, how, how did how did you not think oh, I'm in it? I'm just this crazy Fruit Loop that I'm seeing the <laughs> world different, even though I'm seeing it right or whatever. How do you start learning? Yeah. Back way back then, like
0: actually, I didn't. I didn't start learning. All I did was I came to the conclusion that this, yeah. the soil movement, has got to stop. Yeah, it's as simple as that. So because-
2: basically, it was more. A, you identified a problem. Yep. And yep. Started thinking about.
0: And that's all that any farmer is. That's all that anybody in business is. Yeah. yeah. And and even running, even um trying to um, maintain a family unit mm. is all about problem solving. It's about yes. coming across an issue and dealing with it in a sensible, yeah. rational way. Mm. And, uh, and I looked at the, um, at the soil erosion that was happening at home and I thought, this just cannot happen. We, yeah. we, can't, we can't do this. Like, it's all right for Dad to say, oh, let's pull it up with the excavator. But he only had about five or 10 years left in his career. Mm. Whereas for me, if I, if I was only there for 18 months before I noticed that, that wire buried, and if that's what happens in 18 months, then geez, maybe I won't have a problem in 30 years' time because our farm will be flat. Yeah. for All I know, because <laughs> I will have eroded all. So we, yeah, I really had to come up with a solution to that. And, and, uh, I was lucky in that, um, well, I should start by saying I've grown up with horses and we've had horses on the place all our life, all my life at least. And, um, yeah. And my mother always said that, um, you know, she, she would introduce me as in the horsey world as that I was, um, I've been riding horses since before I was born because mum broke all the rules about riding when she was pregnant and all that sort of thing. So the horses go way back. So a saying that dad had was that he ran me on a loose rein. And I think that was because dad was more of a follower than a leader. And he would look at other people growing, you know, growing a certain crop. If they did it a certain way, then if dad did it that way, he would have as much success as them. Oh, because you know farming was a recipe to him, yeah. Mm. And if you followed that recipe, then you could have as much success as you as the guy who did it the same way, yeah. So, um, so to him, he wasn't really an ideas man, and um, and that made it easier for me because uh, you know all kids have you know we've got a I've got a bit of a wild sense of imagination, and um, and I just happened to carry that through. Mm. So, um, so yeah, he ran me on a loose rein, and I was able to just um, not so much do what I wanted, but he, he gave me a lot of room to, yes. learn. You know, to experiment, yeah, and to yep. learn, yep. yeah. And That's isn't cool. it
1: amazing, like, if you hadn't have come home with those fresh set of eyes out of Telford mm. or from wherever you had come from, you know, he didn't see that erosion. You know, it took – I assert that he didn't see – do you reckon he saw it, the erosion? I no, no. I, I don't think he did. So when, you, when yeah. you're sort of stuck in the – day-to-day running like this is you know most of the operators that I come into contact with is you know we get so caught up in just the doing the following of the recipe Mm. that we don't look outside of that we don't look for things that we're not focused on like you can be sure back then no one was really focused on soil erosion nor were they looking at fence lines and counting wires but yeah and then for you to come in with those that fresh perspective and and not being you know stuck in that I call it the rut you know stuck in the rut of just doing the day-to-day things you're able to Identify these things. And obviously, mm. it's something that you've been able to carry on through even now, whilst you're obviously running the farm and it's scaled yeah. and, and yep. you, you've got people working for you. But I'm still always blown away by your imagination and your curiosity, <laughs> man. Like it's. Yeah.
0: It's a curiosity thing, like it. Yeah, it's it's um it, it's quite weird. I just sort of maybe I just um, like I've always maintained that I live one street across from Main Street. <laughs> Everything I do is just slightly, um yeah, slightly different to what everybody else. And that's probably because just because of the environment I live in, I've got a different set of of priorities and yeah and that sort of thing. But yeah, it's um now it's all yeah it's it's all been good fun. But yeah, there have been there's, there's there have been various turning points and. The big turning point was when I was, um, was, uh, was ploughing a paddock right behind our yard, and one of my neighbours, we've had a large-scale grain dryer, and one a commercial grain dryer, and one of my neighbours was, was carting grain up to the dryer for us to dry, and um, I was ploughing this reasonably steep paddock, and I was ploughing it in five blocks because it was 16 hectares. I was ploughing it in five blocks because I had this obsession with not throwing soil down the hill. So I had to either plough straight up and down, or I had to go throw it uphill. Yeah. And, um, and here I was just you know, getting on with this ploughing, and Rob turns up, and uh, he, um, I stopped, and he asked me, so what's this one going in? And I said, oh, it's, it's going into autumn sign so wheat. And he sort of he gave a bit of a sigh, and he looked down and kicked a clod, and he said, well, this is one I thought you would have left alone. And I thought, are you cheeky son of a... Now, here's this guy trying to tell me, you know, I thought, what business is it of yours? And I stewed over that for the next two hours while I was in that tractor. And nine o'clock that night, I went in to see my wife, Lynn, and I said to her, look, he's got a point. What is our competitive advantage? What are we trying to do here? He's down there on the flat with a 90 horsepower tractor pulling a drill the same width as ours. We're doing all of ours with six tires on the ground and 190 horsepower. Or 180 horsepower. So I said, where's our competitive advantage? We, he, we pay the same amount for a litre of fungicide as he does, the same amount for a tonne of urea. So we need to come up with a better plan than this. We need to try and work out how we're going to do this. Not so much about, what's well, about lowering the cost of production, but we didn't want to do it on the cheap. We wanted to effectively and constructively lower our cost of production and do it in a sustainable way. Mm.
2: Was that a bit of that? A bit of a realization that you were kind of fighting, almost fighting against, or almost fighting against nature, in a way that was the way you are going about it was a tad expensive because you're burning a lot of diesel trying to achieve that outcome. Yeah, was that yeah really a, a bit of a turning point where you're like, is this really the smart thing to be doing? Like, how you know, are we working harder or yeah. smarter, sort of?
1: Yeah, Deal, which so. is the brave thing to do when that yeah. at the time there's no other options. Yeah, like really, there yeah. wasn't. You know, there was no off, off the shelf direct drills back then. No one no. was really doing that, were no. they?
0: Well, they, they were. There was yeah, but I could get into that later. But there was um yeah the the there was a the 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 driver behind it was the fact that I was more interested in growing crops than I was in livestock. Yeah, and that was probably just because I was a young fella used to build hot rods, race cars, yes. that sort of thing. And I've always been into the machinery side of it. Yeah. And um, and I just needed to come up with something, with a way that we could make it work, because like I was saying before, we were stuck in that, um, We we were put in a really precarious position financially. And I wanted to carry on farming as a career, but I was more interested in the arable side. So... I was desperate to make that work. Yes. And we went through the went through the equation went on the back of an envelope about what are we going to do are we going to sell this farm and are we going to just buy something down on the flat that's irrigated and square and nice yep. and straightforward. But the problem was that we would have carried too much intergenerational debt with us and we just could not afford to do that. Yeah. So I had to try and try and go down the road of adapting a system that would work on our land because we had a good amount of land there, but yeah, we had the scale, but we just had the debt problem that, yes. so what we did had to be off had to be funded by income rather than by borrowing. Yeah. Yep. And it had to work. And, yeah.
2: And it's quite a different time that, isn't it? I just picked up a book recently talking about the eighties mm. and that time and obviously like my family went through that and how we got through it, I don't know. And <laughs> yeah, you know, like Yeah. Dark so, times. Yeah, like the, res- Dark times. the respect I have for my parents for getting yeah. So I don't. I don't know how I would. You know, I put mm. myself in those shoes. And like, how would I cope with it? I was like, yeah, I don't know how I would do it. And that's, yeah, um, our low insane. point. Like,
0: our low yeah. point was 1989, where we had made. Um, we were. Um, we had a four hundred thousand dollars gross income back then. Um, we lost seventy one thousand dollars in 1988, and then in 1989 we lost. We made a second loss of $77,000, so we were well up there, you know, 20% of our gross, um, you know, as, as a loss, as a cash loss. Uh, that was when the debt was on, our debt repayments were on interest only, but interest was at 20.8% for our mortgages, and the um, and the rest was was um, higher than that, or the current account was higher than that. Yeah. Um, but the only thing that saved us was actually the fact that when we borrowed to double our acreage in 1984, which was a good decision back then to do it. Yep. Uh, we borrowed on a second mortgage, so for the for the se- the mortgage, the second mortgagees had to get the the written permission of the first mortgagees to put us to sell us up, and the first mortgagees only had a um, they had a very small mortgage. We decided not to add on to that mortgage. We decided to draw up a new one, and the first mortgagees wouldn't give uh, the permission to um, to uh, to foreclose. Because we were um, as far as they were concerned, they had plenty of equity in it, yeah, so uh, they had nothing to lose. yes, so they um, yeah, they basically kept us going.
1: There was discussions about foreclosure at, at that time Oh absolutely we'd, wow.
0: yeah, we had received a um, we'd received a foreclosure notice uh, we mm-hmm. were negative negative nine percent equity, we were showing these two losses in a row, and uh, we had um, you yeah, we had to you know they were acting on their in their best interests. Mm. And then about a month later, we got a second foreclosure notice, which was delivered by the bailiff, and that was when it was really starting to get serious. Wow. Jeez. And uh, we got out of it with a family loan. My um, my father, my father's two brothers were farming separately, and his retired father um, topped it up. So we, we got a family loan, which isn't, was enough to carry us on. Wow! So uh, there was a lot of financial pressure, and yeah. So, I wasn't in a position to be able to go out there and buy big machinery and things to do what I wanted to do. So, mm. we just had to make it work in other ways. And yeah.
2: So, I suppose, yeah, that's a good spot to lead on with. Like, that. I suppose the innovation that comes from being in a position like that for a start. And then yeah. you're already sort of got this mindset where you've got to figure out how to change. Um, so, I suppose it's a good point to start. Let's sort of drill down into this how you got into no till and off down that rabbit hole um, yeah. and yep. what you know what was the the process up until the point obviously now you're rolling across slot and yep. really into that and getting some great results but what talk us through the process from going from a player man down to the point where you don't own a player and <laughs> you've got the cross slot as a key part of your well, system
1: and, and with the dialogue in the community you know, saying that you can't, you know, run arable crops on those hills.
2: <laughs> mm, yeah. Or, or grow an arable, or have an arable system. Without yeah, 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 yeah. Dry land yeah, yeah. on the hills. Are you mad?
0: Yeah. Yeah, well, my, my father was typical, and like, we were all running um, mixed farms back then. We all had livestock in our system. And my father was typical of that generation who would, to him, it didn't really matter what the contour was. To dad, a, a, a pasture paddock was merely a cropping paddock having a break. So that was how we kept it all sustainable. And in inverted commas was that we would have a pasture phase in yeah. our system.
1: That was the rest phase. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, um, so that's sort of that's what we all did naturally. And we just we had more hills than everybody else. So we just we did what everybody else did, but we just did it in a slightly more extreme fashion. Hmm. And being young and silly, I was I was you know all for that because it. Yeah, a bit of risk in your life is, <laughs> makes things exciting. Yeah, and Mike yeah. loves the big gear. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So, so back then, I was still dreaming of changing our our seven furrow plough with an eight furrow reversible and all that sort of thing. And I thought the reversible plough was the key, but it actually wasn't. And um, and then when when we started going down the no till route, you know, like I said before, it was really only driven by um, by soil erosion. And what I was seeing with soil moving and clay knobs opening up and that sort of thing. And I, I just, I assumed that if we stopped cultivating, then that would be the silver bullet. That would, that would not only, it would, there was all those benefits I'd heard about no-till in those early days. And I should say, by the way, that this harvest that we're going into now is harvest number 23 under 100% no-till. So we have, yeah, we're, we're approaching 24 years <laughs> of, of um, not cultivating anything. Yeah. And uh, and and it's interesting, my mindset now is it just does not come in into the into play. Like I can't see any problem that can be cured by cultivation. It's absolutely, it's crazy. It's really mm. weird. It's just my mind has been totally recalibrated. Yeah. You know, there's guys there at the um I was at the far field day at Chertsey yesterday, and those guys were there was one guy talking about how am I going to control weeds if I'm not burning the residue and I'm not cultivating. <laughs> And I was um, explaining to him later on that, hang on, the reason why you're spraying the weeds is because, you, is because you want to clean the paddock up. But the reason why the weeds are growing is because you're cultivating. So if you stop cultivating, you won't have weeds. You, you, and, and Oh, yeah, yeah, but you, you've still got weeds. And I said, yes, I have still got weeds, but they're well and truly controllable. And, um, and he was saying, yeah, but cultivation just offers so much better control. And I said, no, hang on a minute. In New Zealand, our um, us and our forebears have been cultivating to control weeds for a hundred years. Mm. It's it's taken a hundred years to get this far. Why are you still battling it? Yeah. If cultivation worked to control weeds, then mm. we would have no weeds. It's and we're not making way. any
1: progress with it. It's no. not getting any better. We're developing no. stronger and stronger chemicals, and yeah. you know more and more resistance to those chemicals. The weeds are winning that battle. Yes. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And so in your system, Mike, like. Previous to your you know light bulb moment around diversity, which we'll talk about soon. Mm. Um, prior to that, you know, growing grasses and cereal crops. I know you did play with some some seed rapes and things as well. But yep. when you look at you know what causes weeds to grow, and a lot of that is compaction. And when we're just growing grasses and small clovers and things, we're not getting that aeration that that will you know help with that um reversal of the soil compaction. So of course the soil compaction persists. So of course the weeds persist. But mm. now. You're playing with more more plant diversity, more different root architectures, and yeah. and like, well, last time I was out at your farm, I, I didn't see many weeds, man. Like, is it nah. just say it's getting better?
0: Yeah, 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 definitely. But I should say about weeds. Weeds are an interesting thing because um, basically, what it happens is like if you cut yourself, you you'll bleed, then that forms a scab, and then on um, then from there, the skin repairs itself. And you may end up with a scar, but it will repair itself, and that's what nature's doing by growing weeds. She's repairing herself. She's covering the soil because bare soil is a real problem for for nature, mm. and uh, she'll do everything she can to to uh, protect it. Because what happens when we cultivate? Um, the trouble is that um, the hyphae and the you know mycorrhizal fungi that is um, that is the basically the link between the nutrients and the and the plant um, or the biology and the plant. Um, the problem is when we break all those. And we expose them to the air. We that the soil ends up being less fungal in that cultivation layer and more bacterial. And when it goes bacterial, we end up with this nutrient, this nitrogen-rich soil that just immediately grows weeds as a reaction. Mm. And so, um, yeah, so everything—it's—it's it's like a chain reaction. at all. Yeah. It all happens one after the other. So And then
1: we go and apply some synthetic nitrogen that drives it even further. Mm, and we've got the perfect yeah. storm or mm. recipe, if you will, for growing weeds, don't we? Yeah, yeah.
0: But in my we, we could cover it a bit later, but in, in my situation, I just don't think that, that not applying artificial nitrogen is the answer. No, no. Um, no, because nitrogen is the driver of production and it depends on your on your system and how you how balanced your system is, whether you need artificial fertilisers or not. Sure. So I'm not quite that far down the track. So, so for me, it all yeah, going back, it all started with the no-till because that was, to me, in my limited knowledge, was the silver bullet. It would give us soil stability and it would give us moisture retention, especially if we left the residue there. But one thing I did acknowledge early on is that no-tillage is not merely the decision to stop cultivating. It is a system, and the system involves things like residue management. It involves crop rotations. And it involves all sorts of things like that. So you can't just stop cultivating and, and say you're a no till. It won't work. Mm. It just and won't work. And people did that,
1: didn't they? Yeah. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And all of and a sudden it was no till's fault. You know, like yeah, it was the, yeah. Yeah. Yes. And that's the weird
0: thing is that, um, is that if my system for one reason lets me down, one reason or another lets me down, apparently it's because no tillage doesn't work. But if their system lets them down, it's an act of God. Mm. Oh, it was was a dry year. It was a bad season. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, There's always something. My hill
2: washed away, and (laughs) (laughs) well, isn't that just unlucky? Yeah, yeah.
0: What are the chances? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So yeah, it was um, back then. It was going to be the silver bullet, but um, but yeah, you were talking about the um, the 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 biodiversity part, and um, and that sort of came along. It was that was solving a problem. Every every step along the way has been solving a problem. But to me, where it all started with was soil quality. Mm. And it was soil quality and soil stability. And so um yeah, so that was really the, the starting point was that I was passionate about this. I became passionate about the soils because I realized how important they are to what we do. Mm. There's you can't get away from the fact that that it doesn't matter what sort of farm type you're on. You rely on that soil to be in good order. You can't farm soils that are in in poor condition. It's at it, one, it costs a lot. Two, it raises the risk. And um, yeah, it's there's, there's just no sense in it. Yeah. So yeah, you know, I just started to try to learn how to look after soils, and I thought no tillage was the answer. But I'd been all, f- over fifteen years in no till, and I was digging holes one day as as you do. You know, there's a spade on every vehicle at home, and I was digging holes, and I thought. And we had been talking about soil quality a bit earlier than that in a um, no-tillage conference that I was at. And I was looking at my soils, and I was really disappointed. I was was thinking, why is it that after 15 years plus of no-till, we were seeing virtually perfect soils in the top 100 to 150 mils, and then below that, you would think that I'd start cultivating yesterday. They were still quite tight, and they were... You know, they weren't really as open and friable and and full of um, organic matter and um, you know residue as the top layer was. And um, after looking around and doing a bit of digging, I found that, or doing a bit of um, theoretical digging, I found that the reason why was because of the um, that is that's only as far as the root zone of the majority of the crops that we were growing. Mm -hmm. So it was then that it dawned on me. Um, far too late in my opinion, that uh, it's, it's all about, it's not actually about no-till, it's about living roots. Mm. And no-till is stage one of getting there. Yeah, so that was when we started getting into cover crops. Yeah. And the diversity that the cover crops offers. Yep.
3: Yeah.
2: So what was the, the like your first casting, casting your mind back, what was your first crack at a cover crop and how did that go? Um, and, and how did you go about designing that?
0: Well, actually, that wasn't about growing cover crops. wasn't actually about the living roots for a start. I'm, I'm just—it's all coming back to me now. It <laughs> was about ten years ago, I um I was um it was uh, in my days when I was involved in Federated Farmers, and then about um and then about six years ago, probably or seven or eight years ago, I was involved in. I was the arable section chairman for our um for our district. And part of the job was to try to negotiate with the regional councils, the district councils, and the fire service, um, who then after that changed to Fire and Emergency in New Zealand. We had to try and negotiate a a, a system where farmers could, could burn crop residues. And I was very passionate about burning crop residues in that it wasn't that I was into burning uh, everything. I just wanted to retain the right to burn as, a, as one of the many tools we could use to be able to do what we considered to be the right thing, so if we lost the the right to burn, in my opinion, that we could bring up other problems, um, the, you know, we might solve one problem, but we might create two at the same time, so um, if we could use it sensibly and we could use it rationally, then I considered burning to be a useful tool yeah so and I was representing my you know my um, constituents hmm. in that process, it became it became obvious to me that uh, it's only a matter of time before we, there's a chance that we lose the right to burn. And I'm, I decided to front foot it and I wanted, to be the, I wanted to be one of the guys that had an answer to this. So my answer was to use my no-tillage system to its advantage and to retain the likes of the wheat residues, which is big for New Zealand because you know, we're growing 10-ton crops, basically. Uh, the average in the UK is 7.9. The average in New Zealand is about 8. So we're actually growing bigger crops in the UK. And uh, so that means we've got round about eight tonne of residue sitting on the top of the ground. And, the tr- and that was when I started learning about CN ratios, carbon-nitrogen ratios. And I found then that the, that the wheat stubble, the wheat straw, has a carbon-nitrogen ratio of 80 to 82 to 1, somewhere around there, about 80 to 1. But the sweet spot for our soil biology is 24 to 1. It needs 16... Um carbon to to basically build the soil and and maintain the soil, and it needs the other eight to to maintain its own biomass, its own body weight. So we, it was looking for about twenty four to one. And I learned that if we were to apply, if we were to add this eighty two to one carbon nitrogen ratio of wheat stubble on the ground and expect the biology to break that down, they're going to go mental, trying to get that under control. And they're going to need energy, which is the nitrogen in it. If there's not enough energy, they're going to go looking for a good, easy, available source of energy, which, unfortunately, for the farmer, is plant available nitrogen. Mm. And that's where we get nitrogen lockup. So the problem is that when you've got a battle between the soil and the plant that we're trying to grow, the soil will always win. There is never ever going to yep. be a a time where where the soil doesn't win. So my theory was okay. Rather than adding nitrogen, um, artificial nitrogen, which would be just defeating the purpose, we need to somehow balance that out a bit more. And so I thought, why don't we take, why don't we grow something in that residue, a cover crop that um, that I'd heard about why don't we grow something like that where where we grow something really low C in ratio and then if we left that there and let it rot down with the residue, it would effectively dilute it would water down the carbon in the in the, um, in the wheat and so that was what I did that's where it all came from but it, after growing a crop of peas after that, we had a bit of a disaster on our hands in that um, I sent away, the peas weren't looking very good. when they, they were looking really good when they came out of the ground, but they got to about about six inches high, about 150 high, and they really started to turn. I, I sent a, um, a tissue, plant tissue analysis away and found that they were horribly low in nitrogen. And what I underestimated was the amount of nutrient that that cover crop would draw out of the soil to grow, which was brilliant, because if we were doing that in the winter, not only were we arming the soil by having green leaf on the top plus the crop residue. So the rain, this, the wind, the sun, the frost, didn't harm the soil because it was down underneath all that. Uh, we were also immobilizing those nutrients that were in the soil because we were dragging them up into a plant where they couldn't be eroded. And the living roots of the plant were anchoring the soil so that we would have less of a chance of losing soil off farm in a rainfall event. So everything I could see was good about no about no-till retaining residue and cover crops. So, I was in this gangbusters. I thought, this was really good, but what I underestimated was how long it would take for that nutrient that's up on the in the cover crop plant to make it back down into the soil again. Mm. so I'm now in a position where after after um, um blowing about how we over the last three years i'm able to show you on our financial records that we're putting on fifteen percent less fertilizer in a dollar. In dollar terms, than what we were three years ago, and still making it work, I'm going to have to claw back probably anything up to five percent of that because for the first time in my life, I'm going to be putting nitrogen-based fertilizer down the spout with peas mm-hmm. because I need that to happen to make that system work. But in saying that, the wheat ground afterwards will receive the benefit
1: because it's good, that. That yep. material is broken down and yep. returned to the soil. You mm. just don't have time to wait when, you, yeah. when you're you just, planting those. You've, yeah, yeah, you've
2: kind of identified where the gap is. Yes, where you don't have it. So obviously you're plugging that gap yep. with a little bit. And yeah, yeah. So, so there
0: we go, problem solving again. But mm. that's just—it's all just—you know—it's the process of finding out. And unfortunately, it's cost me a lot of money because there's, that's <laughs> not the work—the work that's being done by various organisations in New Zealand is not. It's not about. Whether you can, about growing cover crops and that sort of thing, it's about growing catch crops where they're trying to remove nutrient after wintering livestock intensively. So it, um, because they've got, after they do that, they've got bare soil and they've got lots of nutrient in it. And so their problem is opposite to mine. My, you know, my problem is that I, I lack nutrient. Um, so, um, so now the, when, I'm, when, I'm focusing, when I'm doing cover crops, now I'm focusing on fixing nitrogen because like I said before, nitrogen is the driver of production and I want to be able to create it naturally in its in its stable natural form mm. um, before I and then top up with artificial yeah. rather than rely on artificial. Yes. So that's sort of where where we're leaning now. But
2: yeah, I suppose that's a big one with um, building your organic matter and stuff as yep. well. You get you know you're like, yeah. effectively you're building your bank. Yep. Making your bank bigger. Yep. And obviously um, smoothing out that supply. Yeah. Uh, as well, so and re- or regulating it, I guess. Yeah. And, um, and as
0: we know the. The soil organic matter is where the, where the nutrients and the moisture are stored, and it's also the energy source for the biology. So it's it's basically the organic matter is the driver of soil quality, um, because if we've got if we've got organic matter there, we've got a bountiful amount of uh, soil biology, which the worms are feeding on by by working through the soil. They are uh, leaving um, nutrient rich, um, you know, like that as they go through the soil. They're digging um, they're digging wormholes. And the wormholes are not only aerating the soil, but they're also leaving that nutrient on the, stuck on the outside of the holes. So, um, so the roots follow them down, and they're feeding and, and aerating at the same time. Now, The, the whole thing just, just works beautifully. Yes. It's just like an, a, a symphony down there. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah. Oh, I
2: think I saw something on Twitter a while ago. You are talking about how much rainfall you've had for the year. How little and rainfall like, you've well, had. Well, yes, lack, <laughs> that, lack thereof. Here, like at the moment, here are the crops, because I haven't seen any photos of yours recently, but here are your crops looking at the moment, given how little rainfall you've had. And then also, what is other people in your community, what are yeah. their crops kind of looking right on the same rainfall?
0: Yeah, they're looking surprisingly good and everybody's crops are but i i don't know what it is maybe it's a lack of wind we you know when we do have a wind event it's usually only intense for a day but um but yeah they our, our crops are not looking any different to anybody else's and that to me is a win because we're on these ugly hills yes. with not a lot of soil up there and um we've i'm able to say that we are keeping up with the district average mm. and when we started you know we, like guys would say to me um, you know, how's the no-till going? Oh, it's going really good. Yep, yep, I'm getting along. And it wasn't actually going very good. I was, I was, I was learning. I was learning as I went, and it was oh god, those things falling apart. But yeah, it was all explainable. No, good, good. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was all explainable. But I was thinking, why does this have to cost me money? Yeah. Farming. This would be so much fun if I didn't have to earn a living off it. But, but anyway, yeah, well, that's, that was just the learning process. And, uh, and they would say, that they'd look at it and, and as if they were disappointed. They would be looking at it and saying, well, I thought no-till was meant to give you better yields. And I'm saying, no, hang on a minute, you're missing the point. Yeah. I'm not cultivating anything. I'm doing a third of the tractor hours that yeah. you are. We're not burning crop residues. And we're getting exactly the same results. When you're building, How is that a you're,
1: loss? You're building your soil quality. You're adding your nutrient pool. Yeah. You know, maximizing mm. your nutrient pool. Like the benefits are yet to come for you. I guess yeah. are we? Yeah. You know,
2: are they kind of stuck back on that silver bullet theory? That yeah, mm, you know, if, if you're not if you're doing something new, oh well. Mike yeah. thought it was going to be a silver bullet, and yeah. it wasn't. So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. we're used
1: to getting it now. We get the response now. Everyone wants that. The, the yeah. you know, ha- yeah. to happen now. But you're saying it's more of a. You know, it's a whole systems, you know, think. It's, it's, yep. it's, it's not about one plus one is two or this plus that equals this. It's yeah. really, you know, broadening that, that yep. perception. It's kind of like that hamster yeah.
2: wheel effect, isn't it? Or a bullwhip effect or a whiplash effect that you get on this.
3: Yeah. On mm. this flywheel.
2: Yeah, on the flywheel. Yeah, a flywheel. Mm. And um, yeah, like that one crop in isolation may not see a big difference, but yeah. over time, yeah, and I think that's yeah. Weird. So when
0: so when I talk crop yields, I don't. I'm not comparing my pea yield, my wheat yield, my all said rape yield with other people's. I'm comparing my rotation yield. So we don't. I don't consider growing a wheat crop to be, um, you know, a, a, a record-breaking <laughs> yield on a wheat crop to be a win. To me, the win is about having a say a five or a seven-year rotation and having all of those crops winning. So it's we're playing in nature, we play the averages game. Mm. Everything's about averages and everything's about balance. Yep. Yeah, There's no so, point
1: growing a record-breaking crop that actually costs you money and then afterwards yeah. you can't grow anything. Yeah, yeah you've got three, three years to stretch yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. 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 So it's like you know, one no-tillage guy um, who I know very well, I've got a lot of respect for, and when he first started out, he told the direct drill salesman that um, this is a gimme. I, he says, I'm – I'll warn you now that every I I lease out X number of hectares per year to a potato grower, and he leases that to grow potatoes. I'm going to keep on doing that because that's my best earner. And uh, so we'll just have to forget about that, and we'll work on the rest of the farm, Uh, which, of course, that that rotated around, that area rotated around the farm. And um, anyway, about three or four years later, uh, once he had sold him a drill, and they were in the in the no-tillage system, they were going out digging holes. And he said, "What about when was this last them? Can we go and have a look at one that was just in potatoes?" And he said, "No, you can't." The farmer said, "No, you can't. Why not? Because he's not growing potatoes anymore. I can't afford to have him on the place." Oh. <laughs> and so he had made the decision after after a few years yeah. that the potatoes, that the money that was being paid was it was costing him more than he was earning. Yes, because he was talking about the about how long it takes to recover from it. And, um, yeah, and that was, that was where, you know, where we were. But, to, but I think what a lot of people, I think where we make the big mistake in New Zealand is that because it, it should be a good thing that in the mid to late 1980s we lost all farm subsidies. That meant that we, we weren't looking at uh, the, the equivalent of the UK area aid payments and those sorts of things to, to a proportion of our income. Um, so the good thing was that we could farm according to uh, what the public or what the consumer wanted, and we were paid accordingly. Mm. But the downside to that is that we're now in a position where we only get paid for what we produce. I get paid to produce a ton of wheat, and that's it. So the, the problem is with that, that we, we are then, if, if that price of wheat goes down below the true cost of production, which might be how long it takes to recover. In other words, if we have to grow a lower profitability um, restorative crop after a depletive crop like wheat in our rotation to be able to keep things in balance, then that's part of the cost of growing wheat. Mm. But if we can't afford to do that and we need to grow another wheat crop and apply a whole lot of nitrogen to it and and other nutrients to make up the shortfall, then we immediately externalise that environmental cost and that's where farmers in New Zealand are at now, in my opinion, is that we've externalised the environmental cost because the only incentive we have is production. Yeah. If you grew wheat and you got a better yield than me, you're a better wheat farmer. Yeah, yeah. If you, yep. you know, if I had deer and you, Duncan, were mm. um were better at um you know you you've got a higher falling rate or whatever or higher velvet cut than I did, yep. then you're a better deer farmer. And so that's how we judge ourselves. We judge ourselves on production and production yield. only. Yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah. And I think that's quite a challenging thing, isn't it? To, yeah. Um, because when we're comparing these things, yeah, like yield is the yeah. game. And yep. we don't talk about, um, though, and I suppose winter, winter grazing is another big one Like people are like, oh, we need this cash flow. And, mm. um, you know, it stacks up and we've got to be doing it. Yep. But what isn't talked about is that externalised cost that, yeah. Um. Needs to be brought in, and I suppose like consultants, you know, when they're looking at a spreadsheet, you know, it's all dollars and cents. Mm, yeah. and yep. Those environmental um, components aren't even, yeah, even in the register yet. So, mm. um, and yep. yeah, there's no, you know, like our management programs and compliance yeah. programs we're going to use don't yep. account for that. And no, yeah. No. So it kind of, I think it kind of sends us off down a, yeah, the wrong, or well, our thought patterns aren't. Right, because yeah. we're dictated by yep. trying to farm within the- within some yeah ideological so, boundary. That isn't so our right. job
0: is to is to basically educate the public or our our end users. We need to educate them on how important it is to look at to look at agriculture as a practice rather than a career, yes. and and that we need to um, we need to look at the whole. The whole the value of everything we mm. we know you know it's like the like accountants quite often say he knows the he knows the price of everything and the value of nothing yes and uh, yes yeah, so so our job which is near impossible is to try to um, get the public to see the big picture of how food is produced and then they need to then decide what's important to them place a value on that and put their money where their mouth is mm. so in other words they need to come up with a uh, their solution. The solution is in their hands because at the end of the day, when a farmer doesn't receive any subsidies, he only has the the consumer to consider. Mm. And so that's that's so it's, the solution is in the consumer's hands. Yeah. So mm. they need to decide what's important to them and be prepared to place a premium on that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I don't cheap. know. I don't know how we can do it. But well, I, I think yeah. it's
2: a challenging thing that a lot of us grapple with, and yeah. that's um, you know we have a set of values, yep. value and what we believe and all that sort of thing and comp- consumers are a prime example mm. they've got to do that we have this belief system and we say you know we might say outwardly oh we should be doing this or should be doing that and yeah, yeah. like living those values i think is yeah. for everybody is you know a- as a farmer and as someone who eats food mm. uh, we need to you know there's no point saying oh well cage eggs are no good but then you are still yeah. go and buy the cheap eggs at, uh, at the supermarket so yeah, yeah yeah we all need to be I guess, living our values more. Yeah. So that's the challenge.
1: Well, I think in this age of, like you say, Dunk, the, the information being so readily available, people are waking up to the fact that it's not as, it's not just, you know, people are realising that they are what they eat. And, yeah. and much like the way we farm, especially if you've got livestock, um, or even if you're a pastoral farmer or arable farmer, you know, your soil health is basically going to reflect the health of your crop. And yes. yeah. people are now realising, like in the sadness of it, is that, you know, good food is not, is not available and it's not cheap and so people are uh attracted to the to the cheap option mm. but then we've got to go and spend money on on you know supplements or <laughs> you know healthcare to mm. treat the symptoms that come along with it's like it's like um and I I I'll, I'll just for instance fodder beet you know when we grow fodder beet it gives us that massive yield you know the information coming out of Lincoln says that the effects of fodder beet if eaten more than 28% of total daily diet of a ruminant an animal is um, that animal's massively at risk of of acute acidosis and we don't see that straight away. You know, the animals don't drop dead, although sometimes they do, but we're not linking that connection, not making that connection of, okay, what this cow eats, although, sure, it gives us the dry matter, it gives us the figures, um, the costs come later in the form of animal health and drops in production. And people are waking up to that, I believe, consumers Hmm. and farmers.
2: I think it can only be a good thing, like the more we can connect with consumers and actually because I think by and large consumers don't understand
0: no production
2: no. systems and I think yep. well, I saw it somewhere on line somewhere yesterday someone was saying about they were frustrated that consumers you know it was someone who wasn't into regenerative ag at all and that they were making the point oh well consumers they they like this idea of regenerative agriculture but they don't understand production systems so mm-hmm what would they know yeah so now that was like the thought process but that's the other way around for me otherwise you know the more i can show people what i'm doing and you know you have people that come and have a look and it's just like you see them light up or yeah yeah you you explain how you're doing it and they're like man that's cool or like you know even like last year i had one of my neighbors down the road who that you know they caught conventional farmers very good and She's a photographer. are both kind of semi-professional. She rang me up last year. She's like, oh, "I've just driving past seeing that crop of yours, and you got your velvetings, stags in there, and it's all looking off. Can I come up and uh, take some photos?" I like, just, yeah. just, just, you know, just don't, just don't tell. Like, yeah. I've, I've, been not, I've been not saying <laughs> no. So just, just don't, just don't let. Um,
1: <laughs> They're out there doing commando
2: roles, making sure Don't, no don't, 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 don't let Mister X know that I was up there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, So yeah, we went up there and let her on the gate one night, and. Um, Stag's came over for a lock and she got some cool photos and it yep. was pretty cool to see. So Yeah. yeah.
0: Well, you were, um, sa- you were saying before about um, just um, sort of, um, I can't, can't think of the word, metaphorically I think it's a word, but anyway, um, you were saying before about what, you know, in a farmer's eyes, what does the consumer know? The consumer knows what's important to them and they only know what's important to them by within their own knowledge base. Yeah. Exactly the same yes. as the farmer, only knows what's important to yes. him in his knowledge base. Definitely. And the interesting thing about the farmer is that I could ask the farmer, what do you know? And what, in, in a lot of cases, what the farmer knows about yeah. soils, which is where, you know, that's sort of a, a, an important thing for me, is that there, there are three parts to soil. The first is the, is the physical part, the geographical part, whether it's silt, soil, cl- um, you know, silt clay, uh, sand, all that sort of thing. There is also the chemical part, which is how it tests on a soil test, but the part that farmers don't generally know very much about is the biological part. Yes. And uh, so, yeah, so I've got farmers telling me that I'm doing it wrong, but how would they know? Mm. Exactly the same way that consumers are telling a farmer, you're doing it wrong, Yeah. What, what do they know? Yep. Yeah. we uh, we all, know what they've been, yeah. you know. Yeah, what s- they've been exposed to. Exactly. And yeah, I suppose we yeah. can all be
2: quite guilty of, you know, as farmers, particularly like, focusing on one area Mm. yeah, whether it's the biological side and you kind of fall off the wagon of you know keeping an eye on your nutrients and that sort of thing but we don't often put that whole picture together and I suppose that's where a lot you know like yourself and a lot of us are doing we're thinking about the whole thing as a whole and Mm. obviously like a soil test isn't the be all and end all it's part of the picture yeah but then we've got this whole these three things fighting well not fighting against each other but um they're all interlinked and every yes. bit is important. So. Valid. Yep. Yeah. Is valid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. So, um, so if a farmer's got no, you know, like, for instance, you're, you know, I'm talking about a quality soil that's got earthworms in it. But if you've got, you know, if you haven't got enough earthworms, then you've got to ask why you haven't got enough earthworms. And usually it's to do with, it's to do with either an imbalance in the chemical side or in the biological side. Yeah. Mm. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's quite weird, really, how, how it all links together. But, the, but it's interesting that when I grew up as a kid in the 1970s, virtually everybody knew a farmer. And you know, like our wool buyer would, would come in and he would clean up the willow trees to burn in his fire, you know, in his log yep. fire in the in the winter. And that was the connection he had. And and somebody else would know him and they would come out and do it as well. Now I look at the willow trees and go, oh, what a bloody mess. Gonna get in there with the excavator again and I'll strip them down, dig a big hole and just bury it all. Yeah. And so it's it's quite weird. It's how things have changed. I had a moment like
2: that myself. It was a couple of years ago now. We had some Friends out, or group of friends out for tea, um, and they brought their kids out for a barbecue and things. And um, I was quite stopped me in my tracks. Actually, one of them, um, like the kids, were having a great old time with my, you know my daughter and um, one of the women She's a um, she was a real estate agent, and she's oh yeah, you know, this is actually the first time she's been on a farm. And mm. I sat back and I was like, you guys only live in town yeah. half an hour That's away tragic, you know, we've known it? you for years tragic and i was like literally yeah that ruined my night i was like that can't be can't be right and so it's so cool mean like, we get these people out and we've got a lot of you know now my daughter's at school and things we have these people that we know that aren't farmers so i make a point when the kids come out you know come around for a play date or whatever I'd get them on the four-wheeler and get them down mm. and, and stroke the pet deer and they mm. just have an absolute Ball, and yeah, yeah. So the more of that we can be doing. Getting that connection
1: back yep. from, yeah. from consumer to like yeah. I, my kids were, were sort of bored up. Their mother didn't want them knowing where the meat came from, oh, yes. so like meat was meat. It, you know, beef wasn't cow, and yeah, and chicken certainly wasn't chicken. Although, and pretty venison definitely wasn't. Yeah, Bambi. yeah, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> not Bambi. No, <laughs> mm. and um, and and I think that leads on perfectly to like the 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 power of our field days. You know, like the Corum Sense field days where we have farmers and it's massively powerful for farmers to get together and talk about what they're doing. And, and, but also, you know, the doors open for the, for the public, you know, the, the, the town folk to come in. We often get that, don't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah, They come in like, wow, this is, yeah. this is and, mm. and you guys are actually doing, you know, amazing things. Like yeah. not just looking at the media and, you know, like yeah. all of a sudden animal farming is the devil and anyone yeah. that's farming animals and you know, like another perfect example of, Mike, like what you said, you know, the consumer dictates what happens. Well, yeah. the consumers somehow decided that because of the way we're farming animals right now that all of a sudden animals are to blame and so mm. all of a sudden there was all this, you know, discussion about meat is bad and, and what happened? Well, the, the, the market bought in this, you know all this fake meat, which, you mm. know, again, don't get me started on that one, mm. but, you know, just the perfect example of the community or the, the consumer demand is what reflects what we deliver.
0: Yes. Yeah. It's weird that we'll drink pure coffee. We we insist on having organic coffee, but we're quite happy to eat fake meat. But yeah, it's, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, and it's, it's, yeah. It's what the public know and and what they understand. We yes. need to make it's, farming yeah. fashionable. Yes. Yeah yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah. 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 But it's yeah for what I'm doing now. It's certainly enjoyable. Again, it's really. The, the big thing for me, the, the real benefits with doing this sort of thing is about it's, it's brought the control back into my hands. Wow. Yes. I, I was, like, I went through a pretty dark time of quite a few years ago, um, emotionally or um, psychologically, thinking that I'm the last one to make any money out of this. The, the trouble is that we are a, you know, everybody else is working in a cost-plus environment, and farmers really had to, we had to carry the can. We yep. were the ones at the end who got the residual. And uh, that sort of got to me. But yeah, now it's all this is just putting it's putting everything back into balance again, and and that's the and and yeah and, and those we were talking before about the quorum sense field days. That what I love about those is not now people talk about how much they may learn, but the learning is not through. It is not mechanical. Like when you go along to something like the far day yesterday. The For Foundation of arable research, that was mechanical learning where we're told that x equals y and two plus two equals four, whereas you go along to something like a quorum sense field day and you learn that um that things happen for a reason, so that you may not necessarily get the answer, but you'll get the reason why it happens, yeah, so that then you can go back and work out what the best answer is for your um, application, whether it be. A 500 hectare farm, in my case, or whether it be a vegetable garden, you know, yeah. you, there'll be you'll you'll know why certain things happen. You know, why does night, why do why do nightshade and um Californian thistle and chamomiles all grow in the same paddock? It may be because your soil's gone biological. Yeah, yeah, you know, those sorts of things. There's always
1: you've said it perfectly there, man. We we talk about it. It might be this. We have all this perspective or diversity of perspective where people come in. Oh, well, look, have you considered this? Or mm. you know, this is what I discovered. It's not. We're not all following the same yeah. hymn sheet, you know, yep. like the, perfectly said, not mechanical, yeah. and so you leave with all these um, possibilities of what might be going on, and there's no yeah. righteousness, there's no mm. this no. is the way. I think that's what makes Quorum Sense so powerful is we're yeah. just all sharing the curiosity that we have. Yeah,
0: and the inter- the other interesting thing about it is that, like, at the moment, the, the world in general is grappling with trying to define regen <laughs> It's, mm. it's become a bit of a, a, a tagline, a buzzword. Yeah. But we, we're having trouble defining it. And until then, we're all going down different roads. Like for me, what I was saying before is that yes, a lot of people look at me and what I do as Regen Ag, but I'm taking parts of Regen Ag and where I go is, to me, it's about the five main pillars. Um, the five main pillars are the um, uh, little or no soil disturbance, arm the soil as a no bare soil, uh, diversity of rotation, it's living different. roots, and reintroducing livestock so in, into an arable system. So that's that's where I'm going from. But there are other people in there that are doing things like using biologicals, and they're doing sort of things like that. Whereas I'm looking at that and saying, no, that's stages down the track. Yeah. So that's the great thing about about this whole process is that we can we can pick our priorities, what's important to us or to our system, and then concentrate on those, get them up and running, and away we go. Whereas, like I was saying before, the mechanical learning, you've really got to be doing the whole lot in one go. So, guys will go out there and buy, they'll borrow half a million dollars and buy all sorts of shiny shit and, um, and drag it around the paddock mm. cultivating. And um, because they've been told that this cultivator is better than the other one, they all dig, they all do the same job. Yeah. Well, that's um, why we, you
1: yeah. know, we, we, we sort of want to avoid at all costs the, the definition of, because the way that I look at it is we're all just farming. And, and yeah. like if we box regenerative farming or define it, People that aren't doing the definition of that yeah. are not regenerative, and all of a sudden yeah. there's this division between a regenerative and if you're not, you're bad or wrong. Yeah. You know, we're all just farming, and there's so many different ways that it can look. Mm. And yep. and you know, certainly me personally, I'm not interested in defining regenerative agriculture, and I'm actually no. sort of moving away from using it as a term that I use. Um, I've always said that it's just a an umbrella of which underneath lies lots of different tools, and we just mm. fill in the toolbox up all the time. So to define something today. Although it might work with today's context, tomorrow things have altered and changed. All of a sudden, it doesn't fit. So, yeah, I sort of like the idea of just just farming, and we're yeah. just we're just learning all the time and adding mm. to the box all the time.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's our really, really our only um, our only danger point is is trying to trying to define that. And uh, yeah, I think the best thing to do is just to walk away, just yeah. to take two steps back from from even trying to define it. Yeah yeah and mm-hmm. we need to yeah we just need to make it clear that you know what what the that it's it's not important it's not that important nah. yeah yes. yeah like I, yesterday i met a guy who had been oh i've been cult- i've been um uh cultivation free for twenty three years as well, and it turned out he was a sheep farmer who grew um, about eight hectares a year <laughs> with a little direct drill. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he considers himself to be no-till for 23 yeah, yeah. Yeah. years. Yeah, or like And I'm I, looking at what I do and saying, oh, God, that sort of degrades what I do. Yeah, but it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter.
1: Well, yeah. like I'm doing yeah. the diverse species thing. Oh, yep, yep, what are you mm. growing? Oh, I've put plantain in my ryegrass. Yeah, you
2: know? yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. context is key. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, it's all an evolution, isn't it? Like, exactly. Like, um, like my, f- just think about like my farm system yeah you know, I remember like probably three or four or five years ago that I had seed reps were like, why are you putting all this stuff?" In? And I mean yeah. it was just like stuff out of their catalog. it was nothing crazy yeah and because it was sort of an, I was in like a, a p2 p group and you know we sort of a lot of the guys in there they'd grow a crop of chicory or a crop of reed clover and we'd spend all this time at our field days boring down into which crop gave you the best weight mm. gain and I sort of had the revelation one day that we're at this guy's farm, and it was a big place, and he was growing pretty much all the same stuff as me, but in individual paddocks. And I was yeah. like, Why don't you just do what I do? And like, he was like comparing we were comparing weight gains, and it was bloody interesting. You know, the weight gains he was getting on some things, because you think some things should do better than others yeah. by yeah. default. And he's like, oh, Well, you know, like we found this season that this this grass and that herb crop kind of. The weight gains were the same. You chuck a blanket over there, no difference. Mm. And so I was like, well, that's kind of everything I'm growing. I was like, Why don't you just simplify your system and just chuck it all in together? <laughs> and, you know, because so, yeah. you know, he was talking, oh, I was just trying to juggle his rotation and all <laughs> yep. this. And I was like, just. I need chemical residual, so can't play yeah. that with that. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. I was just like, I'm growing all this, but I'd just chuck it in the same
0: paddock. I was like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in, in, in an arable sense, I was um, talking to our all said rape agronomist who was looking at one of our crops when it was just coming into flower, and he said, But you've got facelia in there. And I said, Yep. And he says, You'll have to get rid of that. Oh, why? Yeah. And so hmm. we've got this, you yeah, know, we've, we've got this mentality that it's, it's a monocrop. It's got yeah. to be only all said rape. Yes. Yeah. But I, don't, I didn't see the facelia as a contaminant. Yes. I get the odd vetch and, and wheat that'll regrow, but I don't consider it to be a contaminant. No, that blows I just look out at of it the and back. Say, no, it's all right. Yeah. It'll go I'll over be the riddles. Yeah. Well, it'll yeah.
2: look quite nice with the facelia through it.
0: Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah the facil- cool. And the facility is all, it'll be all gone by the time we're harvesting yeah. the rape anyway. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 And then it'll come up in the next crop and that'll be even better. Yeah. So,
1: yeah. Mike, tell us a bit about the, you talked about the the funds coming back into farming for you. Um, mm. What was sort of the, the turning point that all of a sudden you felt good about what you were doing like i remember conversations we had when we first met and we're mm. talk, sort of talking about the changes you had had um yep. recently whether it was I, it, do you want to tell us a bit about what sort of brought on that um you know all of a sudden. Was was it something along the lines of you felt like you had some more people around you that were doing you know similar stuff like you weren't the only one?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's what it was. What what excited me about about all of it, it was it was when in the early days with the cover crops. What was really exciting about it was the fact that it I could see a solution. You could all of a sudden you could see that it was actually a solution, and the solution was in my hands. It wasn't about going out and spending twenty thousand dollars a year with that. Company, and they would supply me with some kind of um, snake oil in a can that I could spray around. And and because um, that doesn't really make the problem go away, it just makes it invisible, treats a symptom, yeah, mm. treats a symptom, yeah, yeah. So then, same thing happens next year because you've got the same environment. So, so I can see a solution. And what the, the solution I was looking for mainly was what I was saying before about how we had um, brilliant soil in the first 100 to 150, but then below that was quite lifeless. And it was then that I learned that, okay, we need to get biology down there, um, to, because they're the ones who are going to attract the worms, and the worms are going to aerate it, and then the rest, you know, and the worms will, will bring the, um, the residue down in there. The biology will feed on that, more worms, and on it goes, more aeration. And so that's how we can, we can, we can build soil, we can increase soil depth, and we can increase the quality of that soil down the bottom, but we need roots that will punch down through there. And um, so I started learning things like oh it's just wonderful how you can learn things like that lucerne for instance is a really good miner. it'll it'll bring calcium up from down below where where other roots can't reach it, where other plants can't reach it. So that means we we need to put slightly less calcium on if we include that in our in our rotation. And then you, you see facelia is highly highly um, um, now what um, facelia is really good at, is it mycorrhizal, I think? Very it's mycorrhizal. mycorrhizal. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got your oats with a fibrous root system in the top. And you know, everything, everything's got its own its own benefits. And and that was where I started. So I started building cover crop mixes based on what the advantages of each of them were. So now we've got lupins and we've got beans and that sort of thing in our cover crop mixes to try to fix nitrogen. Beans are really good because they fix nitrogen right up. Like if you were growing them as a as a cash crop, they'll be fixing nitrogen right up until not much till pretty much a fortnight before harvest. They're, they're way, way out there, and they just keep going and going. So, so they're really good at setting, setting up a nitrogen-rich seedbed for the next crop. So I started, you know, once I found out things like that, all of a sudden the solution was back in my hands, and that's what made it really exciting was yeah. that you know, I, didn't, I didn't have to keep writing out checks. And, yeah, and that was – just, it just annoyed me how we were the ones who were not only doing all the work – we were carrying most of the risk. Yeah, and farmers do that. We carry risk, and the risk is like we're really only because we're paid on a dollars per ton basis or a dollars per kilogram basis. We're only pa- We're not paid for those poorer years, and um, yeah. So we, yeah. So I, and that was where we were losing it. We were, we were um, three steps forward and two steps back, and it just annoyed the hell out of me. So yeah, taking yeah.
1: some control back, being being able to have a say in what you did as opposed yeah. to just following along and when things don't go wrong, all of a sudden it's someone else's fault or it's yeah. a bad year. Yeah. Yeah. You're thinking, what can I do? Yes. Yeah. And I suppose
2: that's yep. a big thing like from a business purely, you know, in isolation as a business, The mm. most important thing we can do in business is reduce our risk. Yeah. So yep. what are the steps we can take to reduce that reduce and mitigate that risk? And, you know, that's a big one for myself as a yep. dry land farmer. I can't, farm like an irrigated dairy farmer mm. no and manage grass hydroponically like that it's yeah uh, if you do it in a dry land situation it is going to bite you yep and cost you if you do it that way so that that's kind of yeah. where my thinking and that's you know, something along from yeah and yeah. that's something i didn't
0: i i um was too young and stupid to realize the risk that i was placing our system under back then when mm. i was started with the no-till i just went in there knowing that if this is the best thing to do, it'll all work out. Yeah. Uh, and man, did we, uh, the, worst, the worst, the darkest year we ever had was not so long ago, and we actually ended up losing 25% of our gross income that year. Wow. It was absolutely huge. And that was the year that we chose. It was an extremely wet year, and we had all our residue on the ground. And um, so we had soil underneath that was gluggy and wet, And the residue was not allowing it to dry out and we were going into winter where the days were getting shorter and it was just not going to dry out. In the spring, we were um, when we would normally be planting our our spring barley sometime around August uh, to September, I can remember walking around with a spade in uh, the first week of December saying, geez, we could be in here in a week. We could be drilling this in a week. You know, it's finally going to be dry enough to drill. And because uh, a lot of the residue had disappeared by then, and there was just you know there was bits of bare soil here and there, and um, and then there was and that was when I needed I, I decided we need to change what we do because we were under so much financial risk, and um, and then but the but the interesting thing was that the, the the paddocks that had the cover crops in were all in and they'd been in for a month because that soil was all open and friable and. The leaves were transpiring moisture and all that sort of thing, mm. and so when I was I was getting along from one paddock to the next, and I was singing to myself, I just all of a sudden I just had this this wave of self doubt go across me, and I thought, oh my god, what have I done? You know, mm. this is just terrible. And, and I decided I decided then right, well, I'm going to pull the pin. That last 35 hectares of barley that's going in is not going in because if I plant it now in the second week of December back then. Then we're going to be harvesting in April, yep. and we're going to be late for the next year as well. We're just all we're doing Further down. is we're just taking ourselves down and down. A, a, you know, we're in a vortex, yep. and we're getting sucked down into it, and we're just going to be out of business and, and
2: just spending a lot of money in the yep. process. So, yep. so what to do with that thirty-five hectares?
0: Uh, we, we we made the hu- that's why we made the loss with, yes. between that other crops that were sown either too late, too wet. Yep. other ones where we had seed vigor problems because we went into the wet soil and they just hardly grew. Um, so, yeah, seed vigor is a very important thing under no tilt. It's yes. it's really it's it's more important than it is under under a conventional system. Mm. Um, and um, so, all we could do was really just to, like I said, we just pulled the pin and we had to follow that through. Yep. So we missed out on the income from that. And, um, and but. We put it indoors, said rate right the year after. We planted it in February and that resulted in the best harvest of my career. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because we were on course and everything went in in good order.
2: Well, I suppose it's the thing, isn't it? Uh, from disaster, you didn't necessarily, um, well, you some pretty expensive lesson, but um, mm. minimise the damage in the process and, it, yeah, you yep. prevented that knock-on effect that would have yep. taken you five years or something yep. to get yourself back out of. Yeah.
1: Um, well, imagine
0: so,
2: if that soil was bare.
1: Yeah, yeah. Just imagine if you didn't have it covered.
2: By the
0: time we got to January or even February, it was virtually bare because yep. all that residue had, had gone. It Was perfect. Yeah, it was that. yeah, yep. Yeah. But there was, and the, and the nitrogen was back, of course, because the yes. um, the biology had all but stopped asking for it. And so we were. it was a beautiful seed bed, and that was where that it was. It was almost like the old fashioned summer fallow without cultivation. So um, we didn't get to do the chem fallow because, of course, the weeds aren't growing, but um, or not on the scale that you'd normally see them. So. Yeah, so there was one glyphosate back in November or something like that that we did. But then the rest of the time it just it just sat there. Yeah. But um but yeah, that was that was a huge cost, not only financially, but also biologically or environmentally, because we had all that you know, just all that um fallowed ground. So of course that was that was basically eating its life savings mm-hmm. um to, to survive because there was not no living roots in there. So, um, so yeah, the, you, I've had times like that where it's been these major turnaround type times, and they have forced me to, you know, to, to problem solve, to, to make a decision to problem solve. Yeah, so, um, and that's one of the reasons I'm here now is because the best thing I can do is to um, make people aware of the fact that life is not linear yes. and that we, um, you know, things happen and that it happens to everybody and here's my solution. Yeah. Maybe you can gain something out of this. Yeah. Yeah. So um
1: And what would you say to those guys, Mike, that that, you know, given your experience and, and you know, what you've been through and learnt mm-hmm. for the guys that and they don't even have to be arable, but the guys that are perhaps listening that are thinking they'd like to perhaps try some new things, some new techniques, but let's say that there's no one around them that would agree with that or, you know, yep. there's no one around that's doing that sort of stuff. What would you say to those guys to sort of, you know, give them a a, a bit of a, a leg up on, you know? Things to, that they can use or techniques or yep. people they can talk to? or yeah, what would yeah. you say to those guys?
0: If you don't try, you'll never know. Yeah. Um, it's, that's really what it comes down to. The first thing you want to do is talk to somebody who's already doing it and just find, just, just find out as much as you can. Try to get in their heads. Try to work out what it is that makes them tick and how they, how they think and how they prioritise. That's really what it comes down to. It's um, you know, like, like it's not farming as in any country in the world is not a formula. Everybody does it differently, and it all depends on what your priorities are. When I first started with no-till, um, I was farm worker for my father. It was only we, we went 100 percent after Lynn and I um, gained you know that was basically the first major farm decision we made. The first one we made was actually to get a decent set of um, scales and drafting system for, for finishing lambs. And the and then we got a pasture rising plate meter because we thought I was thinking, uh, because the trouble was that back in those days, I did all the arable uh, when dad and I were farming in a 50-50 partnership, I did all the arable and dad did all the livestock. And then when dad decided, when he retired at 65, cold turkey, I was lying in bed one night and I almost sweated with anxiety thinking... Oh my God! I'm a sheep farmer. I don't <laughs> a sheep. <laughs> yeah, and so I had to learn as quickly as I could, and, the, and I didn't know things like how fast pasture grew. So I would look at it and say, "We've got 1,400 covers by my um, rising plate meter," but I'm thinking, "What's that going to be in a week's time? What's it going to be in a month's time? What happens if it doesn't rain? What's it going to be then?" So I had to learn all this and write things down, and it was just about driving me mad recording and continually getting around and around the farm, just looking at stuff. And that was what we had to do. But, but when I decided that no-till was the answer and I wanted to go no-till, I wanted to try it. My father gave me, he, he let me do it, bless his heart. He let me do it on three conditions. The first condition was that no more than 10% of the crop area. He said, we're not an experimental farm. We can't afford to go broke over this. So 10% will tell you if, you, if you if it's going to work or not. But he said, if, with what we're seeing here now, if you can make it work, it is the silver bullet. That, that was what he told me. And, so, uh, and that reinforced my idea that no-till is where it starts and where it stops. I thought, that'll do. That's all we need to yep. do is no-till. But no, that wasn't the case. <laughs> but anyway, there was, but it was a really good starting point. It was the springboard. Um, the, the second condition is that um, I, um, oh, my God, now, for, now I've, I've lost my train of thought.
1: I remember um, you, you had to yep. have another plan, didn't you? Was that? Was yeah, that... that was
0: it. Always have a plan B. Yeah. he said. Always have a plan B because because um, he says if this all turns to custard, you need to be able to get out of it with dignity. So um, so you need a plan B. The third and most important thing is that you must find out how it's done right because if you don't, apl- if you're applying a whole new system, you need to apply the system in its purity. Otherwise you'll never know whether it worked or not. Or so, that
2: all that risk of trying something. Yeah. Getting it wrong blindly. Yeah. And then go, oh well that was that failed. Yeah. Clearly that yeah. clearly no till was. Yeah, no till doesn't work. <laughs> doesn't, yeah. Clearly we, we tried we tried yeah. no till and it didn't work. Yeah. Yet, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. So but yeah, so so those were the three conditions yeah. that, that we um we tried it on. That's pretty cool. And the only problem we had was we had a horrendous grassweed problem in one wheat paddock which confirmed one of two things. Firstly, that I, I need – or two, two things. It, it confirmed that I need to take grassweeds reasonably seriously because we had a cultural solution before and, um, and I needed to change culturally as well. So we were cultivating to control grassweeds, but we weren't controlling them. All we were doing was burying them until next year. Yep. And it just – yeah, so we'd start with a theoretically clean seed bed. And, um, so, and, and the other thing we had to do was we had to – we had to um, basically change our rotation so that the grass, if there were grass weeds in there, we could more realistically control them um, culturally. Yeah. So like what's the use of growing a monocot in a paddock that's had a monocot in it and then complaining that you can't control one monocot in another one? It's, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you just got to you know, do things differently. So now we, now we alternate monocot and dicot. We also alternate high-residue crop and low-residue um, low crop. Uh, we alternate high C:N ratio residue, low C:N ratio residue. Um, we alternate legumes and pulses and and um, uh, cereals and you know that sort of thing as well. So the crop rotation has become complicated, but it's really it's it's easy. It's easy even though it's more complicated. Because it answers its own questions. Yeah. Before it used to be that we would look at it and say wheat is the crop that pays us the most per hectare. So you'd go through the farm map and you'd go bang 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 and you'd put all the paddocks in wheat that could go into wheat, which was really all to all it was to do with is has it got a um, has it been in a, um, a restorative crop like peas or said rape or something, and has it got a really bad grass weed problem? If it had a really bad grass weed problem, but it was in it was in peas before. Then no we'll we'll um do that we'll take that through the winter through a winter fallow, which um looking back was just horrendous seeing bare soil all through the winter, <laughs> and I can't imagine I ever did that, but um and then we would go out in the spring and we'd control grass weeds again in you know in a crop in the spring, so yeah, things had to change completely, yeah, but the another turning point with the no till was when I was talking to a very well respected um no tillage farmer, and he said to me. He said to me um, when I was looking, you know, looking at no-till. He says, he says, you ask yourself, because he was an American. He says, you ask yourself, why is it that you cultivate? And he said, there's only really three reasons, three and a half reasons, why a farmer cultivates. On when you know, when you look at every pass it, it, that you do with a cultivator, there's only three and a half reasons why you do it. The first half reason is recreational tillage. We love driving tractors. It's just yeah, it's good fun. Yeah, so now that we've gotten that out of the way, the three main reasons why we cultivate are the first one is for the benefit of the, the field, of the paddock. So I'm talking there about secondary cultivation where after ploughing, we want to level it to a point where the the boom, the sprayer boom doesn't flap around like a seagull on steroids. It's, you know, it mm. just calms it down um, and, and flattens the paddock. Second reason why we cultivate is for the benefit of the crop. We know what a what a, a white clover past, uh, seedbed or a pasture seedbed looks like compared to a winter wheat seedbed. You know, the winter wheat one's a bit coarser and that sort of thing. But the third and main reason why we cultivate is for the benefit of the drill. And he says, how many times have you heard a farmer say, we're going to have to do another pass because otherwise the drill the won't drill make a decent that. job? Yeah. Or we're going to have to plough that because there's too much trash. Yep. Yeah. Don't call it trash," he said. "Trash, or, trash um, suggests that it doesn't have a value. Residue has, is, a, is hugely valuable, and so it's not trash. It's residue. So, <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was quite. It was a really mm-hmm. enlightening conversation I had with this guy. But that was really what it, you know. What the, the cracks of it all was that there are um, there, there are really only three and a half reasons why we cultivate. There's never been a scientific reason put forward as to why we plough. We just do it. When Jethro Toll, before Jethro, when Jethro Toll invented the, the seed drill, his suggestion on how to use it was to pulverize the soil, absolutely pulverize the soil into powder. And the reason why was because the way that plants grow, and this is, as as a bit of a, um, um, a disclaimer, this is, this is his theory, not what actually happens. But back then, farmers were advised that the way that plants grew was that they took up soil particles. They they basically ingested soil particles and then uh, digested and made use of the nutrients in those soil particles, and so that's how how they grew was by taking up soil. So the finer we can take we can make the soil, the easier it is for the plants to take it up. Yeah, makes so total sense. sense. Yeah, that's yeah, how, yeah, yeah, that's how much <laughs> things have changed. Yes, it's just been a huge change. Yeah.
2: So this one thing I was going to ask you too, Mike. Was your interest in no tools kind of taking you around the world, or were you but like yep. either, you know? personally and with some of the industry groups you've been involved with, Hmm. where are some of the coolest places it's kind of taken you? And I suppose what's the – like some of the technology, you know, machine-wise and people who are using it and what sort of systems compared with the New Zealand context, what's, yeah, some of the coolest people you've seen and some of the toys you've seen?
0: One of one of our one of our real problems that we had in the early days, and I'm talking about sort of 15 years ago, was the management of residue. We were having real problems on the hills with the with the harvesters. Um, We were running two old class dominators at the time, and they were making quite a mess climbing around the hills. And they were and and the residue was coming out one side of the chopper. We had a flatland machine, so it was leaving what we affectionately know as chaff trails, which is where Yep. The grain falls off the side of the bottom side of the sieve. Then when it grows, it grows a green line. And I could never get anything to grow in there because it was just too many slugs and that sort of thing. And so we um, um, we needed to manage the residue better and we needed to upgrade the combines anyway. And it was about that time that we, were, we, we had the opportunity to visit the USA in 2010. And we, um, we ended up going to an international no tillers conference in Spokane, Washington. And that got us into the Spokane Valley, which is known affectionately as the Palouse region, which is basically a bastardised version of the word Appaloosa, which is the local, um, the local Native American um, tribe. And um, so, anyway, the Spokane Valley—I mean, the Palouse—is over five and a half million acres just in the Spokane Valley. So it's a very, very big, broad-acre um, farming area, which mainly grows wheat. Um, canola and garbos, which are garbanzo beans, which we know as chickpeas. Okay. So those guys are growing, um, growing those crops on hills similar to ours. And they, I'd seen for the first time um, operating a levelling combine, uh, which, you know, which uh, hydraulically tilts so that the, um, it can go along the side of a hill and still be horizontal the machi- the body of the machine is still horizontal, still horizontal yeah. Yeah. yeah and that to me was the answer because the salesman that I talked to over here was telling me no you just need a you just need this brand and this model on tracks because it will climb really well and i said no you're missing the point the point is that because of that that um um center of gravity shift when it goes on the side of a hill it's making a big mess it's just carving things up and i need to be able to leave it perfectly flat so that i can um uh, Were well, perfectly level, so that I can um, come in there with a no-till drill afterwards. And he basically told me that the problem with that is that you're no-till. If you're, if you're th- th- what you need is you need a system that can cope with the damage that the harvest is making. And I thought, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, you'll, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's so not what I, what I said or what I asked.
1: Yeah, so thinking for yourself is pretty important. Yeah,
0: yeah. And so we went over there, and we immediately found the solution. And I'd been, and what annoyed me the most is that those guys had been doing it since they were pulling harvesters with horses. They had two guys on there that looked like the grinders on a yacht, and they were winding um, crank handles, working cables, and and leveling the 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 track, the 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 horse-drawn harvester, the you know, bagging function harvester. And they were just doing it by eye. So they'd do this and they'd look around and yep, that looks level. Go back the other way. And they were, you know, two guys, one one going one leveling it laterally and one leveling it longitudinally. Holy moly. So you couldn't and- find one of those models? No, <laughs> no, I couldn't find it. Yeah, I, I, I couldn't have found a, gr- a grinder when I got yeah, home. Yeah, that would be the problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so we were seeing the new version of those, which were electric over hydraulic controls. They were all done with mercury switches and gyroscopes and that sort of thing. So that was the answer. It was absolutely the answer. And uh, so we, we, um, in the end, we actually couldn't do it out of the states. the... Um, Finances just didn't work out. They pay far too much for used equipment over there. Yep. they got too many um, government, you know, too many cash incentives, tax incentives, et cetera. So, um, so we ended up bringing a, a harvester out of France that was um, hydraulically levelled uh, laterally, and it had clausal construction. And uh, just out of Paris, they fitted a, a rear axle levelling kit, and um, we fitted a specialist seed front, big tyres, four-wheel drive, um, straw chopper, premium straw chopper, premium chaff spreader. So right. it's a well optioned machine. And uh, that has been, that effectively closed the circle. So that perfected the system on hills was that now we could manage residue and not make a mess. And all of a sudden, everything just came into play. So that's what it came down to was that we needed to manage that residue better. Wow. And now the biggest problem, the biggest issue I have is that when I've got other guys driving the machine, I'm saying, don't stop, and I'm riding with them. And and there's a problem on the header front, and you've you can't just stop and wait for it to clear. You've got to reverse, and you're looking in the rear view mirror to see when that residue stops falling up the back of the chopper. Yep. Then you can stop, but we don't want to see piles there, piles, with, yeah, because um that makes it hard for the drill to cope with. So yeah, so that was fun doing that. It was get, getting all that set up. It was it was hugely expensive, but there's guys out there that spend twice that much on um yeah we spent about. 70 or 80,000 um, upgrading the machine but i see guys spending that on gps mm. but my um in my situation my my tagline has always been hardware before software yeah and yeah. that's what i what i believe i know there's benefits in variable rate fertilizer application and all that sort of thing but at the moment my benefits are in hardware before software yeah it's about having the right equipment the right drill the right actually one of one old me- um, farmer mentor that i had years ago said to me on an arable farm you only need four decent items of kit you need a decent drill a decent fertilizer spreader, a decent sprayer and a decent combine and uh, the combine does more than harvesting it manages residue and it basically gets you set up for the next crop and i said um what about the horse john what about the um, what about the tractor john and he said no it's only a horse Yeah, all it does is pull stuff. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So all you need there is you just need horsepower, hydraulic flow, and uh, hydraulic flow and pressure. Reliability. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, reliability even um, isn't as big a deal as it used to be because we can always hire Oh, yeah, yeah, true.
2: Yeah. And it
1: doesn't have to come in the form of a brand new shiny one every no, year. You don't no. have to keep buying the new thing to keep reliability. Yeah. Mm. We're
0: being fooled into thinking that, that every five thousand hours a tractor will turn into a pumpkin. Exactly. It's uh it, it's not like that. Now nowadays you can you can just replace anything. It's yeah. brilliant. Yeah.
3: Mm.
0: Yeah. Like on our place we've got about a one point one million dollar gross income and we spend about fifty to fifty five thousand a year on, on machinery maintenance, uh, repairs and maintenance. So that right. puts it in the picture of what it costs us to run the farm. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so no, it's, I don't know whether that's high or low, but that's what we spend. So, yep. yeah. Yep. yep. So now it's, um, yeah, yeah, interesting. Yeah.
2: As, mm. um, I suppose, like your combine was obviously a big game changer. Yep. I suppose we better talk about your other major piece, and that's your drill. Yep. What, before you had the drill we had now, what was like, was there much of a evolution of... <laughs> Machines you tried before you...
0: It was more a revolution than an evolution. Oh, here we yeah, go. Right. We started it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, um, when we, were, we went from the conventional system where we were... Remember, we had those financial issues later on, uh, earlier on. Yeah. So that meant that I didn't get to experiment, experiment with machinery. I didn't get to put things on higher purchase. I didn't get to go through and three years later decide, oh, there's a better one and yep. go out and do that. We couldn't do that. We had no money to do that. Yeah. So we just carried on, and I modified and modified. I've got a welding ticket, and that's about my mechanical knowledge. Apart from, like I said before, building hot rods and things, and so um, so I'm a bit of a bit of a bush mechanic, and I built our own cultivators, and I built a, a header front at one stage for doing um, for harvesting ryegrass, and um, so those are the sorts of things we we would do. We'd do a lot in the workshop back yep. in those days, and um, and that just um, and we you know I would modify our Duncan drill according to what other people were doing with their newer drills. And to, so for me, it was easy to be able to get into the cross lot because I didn't, I didn't have anything on high purchase. We just went straight from one to the other. Yep. Yeah, so, right. so we went for virtually from a plow-based conventional system with gear that was 20, 30, 40 years old. Uh, the drill was in 1965, so that must have been Yeah, the drill was just over 20 years old. Yep. Uh, it was one of the first of the, of the 700s, Duncan 700s. Yeah, so, right. So we had this, so it was a bit like the, um bit like Burt Rose Indian, yep. Indian Scout, where it had just been that heavily modified, you, you could hardly recognise it as a Duncan anymore. <laughs> yeah, it had two small seed boxes on it, and yep. it had, it had an, a, a means where you could, you could plant oats, but you could, under, you could, uh, you could uh, broadcast white clover over the top. And it was, you know, so that we, you could do two different seeding depths, yep. and they were both adjustable. And that sort of thing. It was quite a heavily modified drill. Yep. Which actually I sold for $100 to a, um, to a scrap metal dealer oh, back in Mike. the day. I was about so, to ask if you still had it. If you still had it, I yeah, wouldn't give you yeah. 100 bucks for it. So yeah, it's all gone. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But that was, um, yeah, so that's sort of where we started from. So we went straight into, I, um, I experimented with other drills, but every time I would go, when I, one thing I noticed when we were drilling was something like the Duncan Renovator and we were drilling all said rape into ryegrass stubble. So I was effectively drilling into sprayed-out grass. And the big thing I noticed was that any time a weed grew, it grew right beside the seed, and it annoyed the hell out of me. But the reason why it did that was because that was the only area where the soil was disturbed. And those time drills, they would separate any residue, but they wouldn't bring it back. You pulled your chain harrows, and maybe, through um, uh, chaotic luck, you, you might get a lot of that residue back over the slot again, but most of the time it just shifted it around and then. It fell out the back Or dragged it in into heaps. The yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. So it just seemed to be that I was, you know, it just annoyed me that every drill, until I, I tried the cross lot or looked at the cross lot, uh, I had to come up to Ashburton to, um, to go around a few farms to have a look at it, uh, three farms, and it was the only one that seemed to eliminate mechanical risk. And so that put, that put the quality of the job back in my hands. I could adjust the drill to eliminate that mechanical risk. Whereas the other drills would say, Oh yeah, but um, you know, it's um it may not be as good as the cross slot, but it's a lot easier to pull. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I don't care whether it's easier to pull or not, I only get one chance a year to do this mm. because we're only growing one arable crop a year. know, one combinable crop in our in our um, situation.
2: And the compromises with those other machines. Yeah. When you're balancing it up. Yeah. You know, obviously limits what you can do system wise. Mm. So then your system's gotta evolve yeah, yeah. So, I, put, but yeah. I mean, it's fine. You know, the drills people I know, have good luck with them, but
0: I know those drill manufacturers were catering for a group who were looking at uh, a buyer group who were looking at things like how easy it is to pull, how cheap it is to buy, all those sorts of things. Yep. How easy it is to calibrate the seed rate. You know, that's the sort of thing that people look at. Yeah. But to me, all that's doing is that is the drill manufacturer externalizing the cost of the of the lack of design sense that goes into that drill. Mm. We needed something that did a better job than that because no tillage is not just it's not just about stopping cultivation. It's about applying another system. It's a it's an, it's a system rather than a you know rather than a decision about how you're going to run your existing farm. Yep. So um so if we were going to change the system, we needed to have a drill that was dedicated to that system. And that was why we did the cross And and the funny thing is that it looks expensive to a lot of people, but um, the only other implement we own is a Cambridge roller. We don't, because yeah, that's all, you know, yeah. that, and, and the rolling is basically, all that's doing is getting rid of the ridging, really, that the cross lot will do in some conditions. In other words, when the soil's very friable and beautifully worked, the cross lot can sometimes be an overkill. So it, um, it tends to, um, and and it, it might be a, a good example of where, the, where it's an overkill, is where, the, with the crosslot we can hydraulically Um, using hydraulics and hydraulic pressure, we can dial in the kilograms of downforce we want on the press wheels. So it allows us to pick the amount of pressure that the drill puts on to push the seed in the ground. Yeah, right. Um, And there's times where the soil is really beautifully friable and workable, but we've been grazing the cover crop. We might have grazed, say, 50% of the cover crop, so we've got the odd sheep track going through, or we've got a stock camp. Or round round a gateway or something where the where the trucks came in and out chasing the harvester, so there's areas like that where we've got to compensate by having higher pressure so you've got to have pressure and reserve on those good parts to be able to not ride out in the in the harder parts and so that means that the good easy parts they can quite often get overworked in other words they're, you know we push down really hard the drill tries to dig yep so um, so that's you know that, that's really the only downside with the drill is that in some conditions, it's an overkill. But if that wasn't the case, then it wouldn't be able to handle the tough conditions either. Yeah. So I just yeah. But the good thing is it's got removable weights. I can I can add or remove three tons of um, of um, uh, portable weight. So we can make we can change the weight of the drill by three tons depending on what the conditions are. Yeah. So it's Rocky. it's just yeah. It's it's a fantastic machine. And and I used to ask myself. Um, you know, I used to say to people that. All you've got to do is ask whether you can whether you need those specifications and then find a way to justify financially justify buying the drill. Yeah, now I'm looking at it, and I'm saying it's not a question of whether you can afford the drill, it's a question of whether you can't afford the drill. So um yeah, so it gets to a point sometimes like um my my father was saying that once to me that um, he said he said, the great thing about farming is when is when you get past the point of not being able to afford it into the position where you can't afford not to have it. That's when you know that your system's working. Yeah. Because it's paying for its own, its own replacements. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and that's where the cross is, is that, is that the cross lot to me doesn't look expensive because it's not only doing the job, the, absolutely the job that we need it to do, but it's also paying for its own replacement. Yeah. So when that drill, when the next drill comes along, the first drill will have paid for it. Yep. And there's not many people can say that about their draw. You can mm. sell
2: that one to the scrap man for a hundred bucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Might yeah. be a bit more than a start. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. Well, Mike, thanks for obviously coming up all this way just to have a yarn. Yeah. So, uh no, we really appreciate your time. And it's as always, it's cool to sit down and chew the fat with you. And, um, yeah, I think plenty of people out there should get a bit, a lot more out of knowing your journey and what you're up to. And, yep. um, you know, we really appreciate your knowledge and because obviously you've learned some hard lessons <laughs> yeah. along the way. So we really appreciate being able to learn from you. And um, it's always a pleasure. So yeah. thank you.
0: Yeah, well, thanks for the opportunity. It's, um, it's been great. I've, I feel it's a privilege to, to be asked and it's an honour to be able to um, – I'm, I'm really happy with the opportunity to be able to talk about it and to talk about where, where we've come from and where we're going. And I would, um, I appeal to people who are thinking about doing something like this, like get in touch with people like me, because you'll be able to, you know, compared to where we came from, you'll be able to short, short circuit a whole lot of that and, yeah, learn from my experience. That's what we're mm. all here for. Mm. Well, you know, it's wrong
2: Chicken Mike, so I guess we better get we better get all this knowledge <laughs> out <to> of you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Record as much of it as we can. Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah.
1: No, thank you yep. very much, Mike. I really, yeah. I never get sick of your enthusiasm. Mm. Uh, yeah. You, you were the obvious choice for us for um for our first our first week crack of a podcast. So thank
0: you. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm.
2: This podcast was supported by MPI's Productive and Sustainable Land Use Extension Services Fund. The information, opinions and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. Any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense podcast. Subscribe, share and if you have any comments, questions or topics you'd like us to cover please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org.nz or visit the quorumsense.org.nz website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of
1: real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. We'll see you then.